Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mark Beckoff. He is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder and co-founder with Jane Goodall of Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He has won many awards for his scientific research, including the Exemplar Award from the Animal Behavior Society and the Guggenheim Fellowship. In 2005, Dr. Beckoff was presented with the Bank One Faculty Community Service Award for the work he has done with children, senior citizens and prisoners. In 2009, he was presented with the St. Francis of Assisi Award by the New Zealand SPCA. In 1986, he became the first American to win his age class at the Tour du Haut Duova Bicycle Race, also called the Masters Age-Graded Tour de France. Dr. Beckoff has published numerous essays, popular scientific and book chapters, 31 books, and has edited three encyclopedias. So, Dr. Beckoff, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real pleasure to everyone. Well, thank you, Ricardo. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do. Yeah. Let's go for it. Okay, so today we're going to focus a lot on animals, animal minds, animal ethics. And uh, let me just start with a simple question. <laughs> what, since we're, we're trying here to establish some sort of animal ethics and decide uh, how we should deal with animals besides humans, uh, could you give us your take from a biological perspective of what is a mind or an animal mind in this case? Well, I think um, non-human or human minds are, can be pretty much looked at the same. Um, you could look at them um, as um, the way in which an, an individual adapts to his or her world, the way they think. and perceive and reason um, and how they feel. Um, so I'm not being intentionally vague, but that's the way I look at it. You know, I'm not trying to physically locate the mind. I mean, some people say the mind is the brain. And frankly, I just don't know enough philosophy to say that yes or no. But I think of the mind as being a process in how people um, adapt to how humans and non-humans adapt to specific situations and try to do the right thing, if you will. Mm -hmm. yeah. I yeah. Yeah, I understand. And, and so, but basically, particularly when it comes to other animals, I guess that we try to figure out if they also have some sort of mind and what kind of cognitive mechanisms they have uh, looking at their behavior, right? Because we really don't have direct access to what they are feeling and thinking because we as humans have language, but at least as far as we know, there's not another animal that also does have language, I guess. Well, yeah, I might disagree a bit. I mean, I think that, I think you can define mind or think of, the way in which individuals process information across different species, including humans. I, I really do. Um, I don't really have access to your mind in that sense, although because I'm a human, I might get a better feel for how you're feeling by something you say or the way you behave. But, but I do think non-human animals do tell us how they're feeling and what they're thinking. We just need to be very careful in, um, how we watch them, you know, learning, I always say becoming fluent in a, in, in a particular animal's way of communicating. Um, I think there's some good evidence that some non-humans have certainly language-like communication systems. Um, prairie dogs, for example, seem to have syntax and form sentences. And a lot of people think that uh, prairie dogs do uh, they communicate in more sophisticated ways than non-human primates like bonobos and chimpanzees. So um, I'm not sure the having of la 
for me, the having of language doesn't really mean that if you have it, you've got a mind. And if you don't have it, you don't have a mind because animals have evolved um, to do what they need to do to be members of their species. That's that's just the way I look at it. And, you know, the more we study non-humans, the more we learn about them. So it's easy to say, well, non-humans don't have language and they don't think and they don't do that. But that's not my view of the world of non-humans. Mm -hmm. I understand. And uh, I mean, I've already asked this question to at least another guest that I had on the show. I think it was Dr. Colin Allen uh, about, about cognitive ethology. Yeah. So, uh, but to you specifically, I would like to ask you uh, what it is about and why it might be important for questions regarding uh, animal ethics and animal welfare. Well, <clears throat> to me, the key element is how an individual feels about a particular situation. And we assess how he or she feels, and then we decide whether their well-being is being compromised or not. So that really requires, I mean, it really demands that we know a lot about the behavior of these animals. We know we, we um, as an ethologist, I make an ethogram, which is a basically a menu of the different activities or actions an animal performs, and we just describe them. That's the descriptive phase. And then we look at when they use um, different behavior patterns in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And 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 my recent, you know, I studied dogs for ages, but I've studied coyotes and penguins in Antarctica and, and various birds. So when I study an animal, I become what I call fluent in dog or fluent in coyote or fluent in penguin and or as fluent as I can be. But but it really requires spending an incredible amount of time watching these animals and learning species typical behavior and then immediately looking at individual differences within the species. Mm -hmm. And why is this so important for ethics? For example, do you have a set of criteria that, we, that you put to use in order to decide that, for example, a particular species or animal is worthy of moral respect? or not, or, or what do you do with that kind of information coming from ethology? Well, what I do is I use it to assess the well-being of individual animals. I mean, I think all non-humans, I'm, I'm going to say animals to mean non-humans now, but, you know, we know humans are animals too. We're not, we're not plants, at least no one I know is a plant. Um, but um, <coughs> we use that information to give them the best lives we can. And I think individuals of all species are deserving of moral respect and being treated decently. Um, so, you know, we know that fishes, for example, recent research shows that, you know, they can be highly emotional. They're, they're very smart, but it doesn't matter how smart you are, it really matters whether you suffer or not. Um, but we know they do. So um, I just, I prefer to live as purely as I can. I mean, we all probably wind up doing things unintentionally that we wish we never did. But I would like to think that all individuals are important because they're alive and they have intrinsic or inherent value. That's really, those are my feelings about the, um, I guess, the sanctity of life. Mm -hmm. But are there any sort of mental experiences that you think uh, are a minimum set that a particular animal should have to be worthy of moral respect? I'm asking you this because there seems to be at least some animals that even vegans exclude from their ethics. Like, for example, there are people that call themse themselves bivalve vegans, they exclude bivalves 
from their ethics because they say that they, there's no evidence that bivalves experience any sort of, uh, um, I mean that they don't have consciousness and they don't process pain or at least don't have a subjective experience of pain and things like that. Yeah, I mean, they may do that, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, they're alive, so therefore, as a card-carrying vegan, I'm not arrogant about it. I just am a vegan. I don't eat them. You know, I, I've I've been with people who say I'm vegan, but I'm eating shrimp, or I'm vegan, or I'm, and I'm eating, you know, crayfish. And if I really want to be obnoxious, I can say, well, you're not really vegan. And sometimes I do. And then they go, well, what do you mean? And I'm saying, well... You're, you're eating an animal. And then they'll get into that argument, well, they're not sentient, or, or what I say is, we don't know whether they're sentient. We, we, don't, we don't know if they experience bivalve suffering, we, we, uh, pain. And I mean that, you know, I mean, the more we study, the more the taxonomic spectrum of sentience and pain um, expands. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I say it's easier to live that way, it's it's easier to live that way and just say, no, I'm not going to eat any animals or animal products. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot we don't know. So I, I, I've had conversations with really young students who are vegetarian or vegan. And I, I wrote an article once about this girl who said, what do you think? My friend says she's vegan, but she eats fishes. And I went, well, she's not vegan, but it doesn't mean she's a bad girlfriend. It just means that, you know, she's not vegan. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I call these um, the, the exceptions. And so, so basically you include all animals in your ethical system. Is that it? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about well, like microbes and maybe there's another kingdom. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're alive. They have a life of their own. They have a life that's characteristic and you hope typical of you know, individuals of that species. And, you know, I don't eat them because of the ethical side of things, not the dietary side of things. I don't worry about that. But I think what happens when you start making ex exceptions um, in your meal plans, for example, I always say who you're eating, not what you're eating, because animals aren't what's or that's or it's, they're who's. So when you begin making exceptions, wh where do you stop? You know, I mean, you know, people will say to me, well, I'm vegetarian, but I ate fish. Well, you, then you're not vegetarian, but it doesn't mean I don't like you. <laughs> it doesn't mean that bad person it just means you're not vegetarian yeah um, yeah but, but but i would guess that uh, i mean you don't include uh, any sort of living system even for example plants or others in your ethical system i mean it has to have at least i guess a nervous system and be able to have some sort of mental experience right yeah, to that extent, yes. And, you know, people always, you know, sometimes they do it jokingly and sometimes they do it because they really want to push my buttons or other people's buttons, if you will. They'll say, well, how do you know when you eat a carrot? The carrot isn't screaming. And, 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 and I don't know. I don't know if there's a carrot pain and carrot screening, but I think what you just said is very true that, well, right now there's no evidence that there's the neural structure, if you will, or the communication structure within the body of a carrot that means that they experience pain. So if someone said to me, are you 100% sure? I think the only fair answer for me would be, I'm not 100% sure, but, but, but what we, given what we know now, and then they'll say, you know, if they want to carry it on, um, well, what happens if we discover that, you know, there is carrot pain or some feeling like that? I, all I can say is that, well, I guess I might have to change my, you know, eating habits. But I mean, 
you know, I think the way you put it is a, is a good way, Ricardo, because, you know, there's reasonable, I mean, there's, we make our decisions based on what we know and reasonable kinds of inferences, you know? So do I think carrots suffer pain? No. But in the end, if somebody pushed me, I'd say, I really don't know. And um, at some point in the future, I might have to change my meal plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that seems reasonable. So, and I mean, there's another question here because we might think about how we should treat other animals from a particular species, but since individuals from the same species behave differently, uh, mm -hmm. do you think that what we apply to humans in the case of equity, that is, instead of treating all people equal, sometimes we treat different people differently because they have different needs and that's equity instead of equality, let's say. Do you think that we should also apply that to other animals, even of the same species? Because I get, uh, probably different individuals also have different needs. Yeah, I mean... That's a very important part of ethology, and it's, you know, pay, paying attention to individual differences. So I always say there's no such thing as the dog or the coyote or the fish or the crocodile or the ant or spider, meaning that we need to pay attention to individual differences. But when you factor in those individual differences, it doesn't mean that an individual is less valuable or less or deserves less less respect what it really means to me is that there's you know within humans but just like within humans there's within other species individuals that have different needs so i may need something you don't need and if you know that i need it or want it when it's important to my well-being then you should do all you can to be sure I have enough of whatever it is and not to deprive me of, you know, whatever it is. So, um, so within species, there are differences, but I, all I could say is that it doesn't make any individual less valuable or less deserving of life. It just means that we need to factor in what they need to have the best life possible as the individual who they are and be sure that we give them what they need. Mm -hmm. And in terms of studying the mental traits of other animals, don't you think that at least sometimes we might err a little bit on the side of using too much folk psychology or anthropomorphizing them a little bit too much? Because, I mean, even from an ethical perspective, uh, I mean, other animals might have also a mental life, a complex and rich mental life, but can be distinct from ours. And I guess it's not that important that they experience the same things as we do to be deemed morally worthy, right? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my bumper sticker, as we say in English, is really err on the side of caution. If you don't know something, assume they do, and then treat them and behave, you know, as if they do, even if we're unsure that they experience certain kinds of pains or suffering, for example. So, it, I mean, for me, it just makes life easier. It, it really does, because, you know, I can, I personally can survive on a non-animal diet and feel sated and feel content and feel happy and ride my bike hundreds of miles a week and get the work done that I need to get done. So I'd rather err on the side of caution. And as a scientist, I say that simply because over the last <clears throat> maybe five or 10 years, but certainly over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, we've learned so much about the cognitive and emotional lives of non-human animals that some of which is shocking to people. I mean, you know, and so am I surprised by what we learn? You know, not necessarily. I mean, 
we just didn't know something. And so we've gone out, done the studies we need to do, and we learned something. So I, I can't say I'm surprised, mainly because if I, if I said that, then it seems like I'd be surprised all the time. The fact is we just have not done numerous studies, observational, minimally invasive studies, um, to learn about the full spectrum of the cognitive, emotional, and even the moral uh, capabilities of non-humans. Mm -hmm. And talking about the question of anthrop anthropomorphization, uh, I mean, do you think that uh, as happens with humans, other animals also have intentionality in their in some of their behaviors. I know that Franz Deval, that has studied chimpanzees a lot, he says that some of their behaviors are intentional, and he is convinced that this is so. But uh, but this is a minority view, I think, among evolutionary biologists, cognitive cognitive ethologists, and people like that, right? Well, I'm not sure how minority it is now, or how few people. I think things have really changed. I mean, yeah. I I find it outstanding that there's a few people. Thank goodness there are few in number who wonder whether non-human animals have feelings and personalities, for example. Yeah. I don't know anyone, even people who might not be willing to give as rich an explanation to the behavior or the feelings of non-humans as I would, who denies that any longer. So do certain animals act intentionally? Does it, do they behave in certain ways <clears throat> or act in certain ways to achieve certain goals? And by even future thought, you know, thinking ahead of if I do this, then this will happen. Yeah, of course they do. I mean, there's plenty of information on that. Um, in terms of anthropomorphism, I don't even talk about it anymore. I tell my students not to pay any attention to it anymore, mainly because we need to use the language with which we're familiar to interpret and explain and describe the behavior of non-human animals. And if we do it carefully, then it's the best we can do. So I, you know, when people say, oh, you're just being anthropomorphic, I usually say, well, what do you mean? And they can't explain it. That's the problem. And I, in one of my books, I wrote about um, the situation. I was at a zoo and I said, oh, my goodness, that elephant looks so unhappy. And one of the people who worked at the zoo said, oh, no, 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 you're being anthropomorphic. She's happy. And then it got really quiet. And I went, well, how come I'm being anthropomorphic? to say she's unhappy, but you're not being anthropomorphic to say she's happy. And that conversation got going, but it, it went nowhere. And finally, he, he just smiled and he said, yeah, I guess you got a good point there. So the point being that we're all anthropomorphic in some ways. Um, and I've put forth this idea of biocentric anthropomorphism, which <clears throat> means you look at the characteristics of individuals of that species, you assess what they want and need and how they go about getting it, how they go about um, expressing their wants and their needs. And then you just make the best interpretation you can based on context. As an ethologist, context is really important because a lot of animals have a limited behavioral repertoire and they use it differently in different contexts. So you might see a palm movement or a facial expression or hear a vocalization or a tail movement. And it doesn't mean the same thing in every context. Um, so to me, that's the challenge of trying to come to terms what um, non-human animals are, are trying to tell me, the, the stories they're trying to tell about how they think and um, or how they think, what they know and what they feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and probably the extreme of anthropomorphization would be to declare some animals at least as persons, and this from more of a philosophical or even legal perspective. I mean, do, do you think that we should do that, that we should classify some sentient creatures as persons or, or not? Well, I do think we should, from not only from the knowledge point of view, but in terms of giving them legal protections. I mean, 
throughout the world, non-human animals are objects in all legal systems. You know, they're just, you know, they have as, about as much right to being treated well as your couch or your television because they're commodities. So I do think it's worth it. And I think what's happening in these discussions that are going on today and have been going on for a really long time, like with Steve Wise and the Non-Human Project, um, is that people are thinking more about it. You know, I wrote a paper once about my mom and my dog, and I loved my mom, and she was going through some serious physical, emotional, psychological deterioration. And if you look at the different criteria that different people use for calling an individual a person, my dog really had more personhood than my mom at that time. Mm. So it was a very sad situation, but the fact of the matter is she, she didn't have autonomy. She, she really couldn't communicate her needs and her wants. She, she couldn't make it in the world, if you will, while my dog could just make it in the dog world. So um, I, I do think those um, efforts are valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as we go forth and more and more animals are you know, thrown into that equation of possibly deserving legal personhood, it's going to be better for everybody. Mm -hmm. But it's also, going, it's, it's also going to be a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I guess. Yeah. But uh, yeah. since you include all animals in your ethic, uh, sh should we then attribute personhood to all of them or just to the ones that are that have more traits that are closer to ours? For example, you gave the example of your mother and uh, your dog and at a certain point you thought that your dog had more personhood than your mother because of certain uh, I mean certain capacities that she lost so do, do you think that there's somewhere a line where we would separate uh, animals that we would classify as persons from the others yeah it's a good question I mean I'm not a line drawer, so I, I hesitate to do that. But the work that Steve Wise and other people are doing by focusing on non-human primates, great apes, you know, elephants get in there. Some people are talking about personhood for cetaceans, orcas, dolphins. Um, you got to start somewhere to get through the legal system. So I've often thought that they might have better success starting with dogs since Probably most lawyers, or a lot of lawyers and judges in the United States at least, have lived with um, dogs. Um, when you start talking about wild elephants, or say, say wild elephants, or wild chimpanzees, or um, pygmy chimps, bonobos, there's very few people who have actually met them in person. Yeah. Um, but, but I do think it's an important endeavor. I do, yeah. And do you think that it will ever it will ever be possible for us to really understand what it is like mentally, psychologically, to be another species? And even if not, is that really important from an ethical perspective or not? I think from an ethical perspective, it might not be all that important, but. To me, that's what ethology is all about. I, I try to become the coyote. I try to become the wolf. I tried in vain, in some ways, to become the Adelie penguin. Um, but, but only so that I could understand what they were doing, because there I was, you know, in their habitat, in their niche, trying to understand different aspects of their um, social, say, behavior and predatory behavior, anti-predatory behavior. So... Um, I think that it's essential to try to become the animal who you're studying, mm -hmm. no matter how hard or impossible it may be. I mean, it might be easier for somebody to, you know, become a chimpanzee or, or a bonobo or, um, you know, a monkey, if you will, than it is for them to become, you know, even a dog or a cat or um, a magpie. <laughs> or a sparrow or a, or a goldfish. Um, but 
But for me professionally, that's the challenge, and that's what's exciting about what I do is I really try to step into their their hearts and their heads, and mm-hmm. figure out why they're doing what they do, why they're doing what they do, um, what they're feeling, what they know, and how this all comes home, if you will, to give them the best life possible. Mm-hmm. And there's a very interesting kind of behavior that we as humans exhibit and other species do as well, and it is common, I guess, in mammals, that is play behavior. And you've studied a little bit that, so why is play so important in animals? I mean, does it have any specific functions that we know of or, or mm-hmm. not? Yeah, well, I mean, once again, you, there's no general rule, but, you know, if you look at across animals who play, including some birds and fishes, they can play to become socialized. They learn social skills. They learn how to resolve conflicts. Um, they get physical exercise, aerobic and anaerobic exercise. Um, they get what, what's called the training response, which is building joints, tendons, muscles, and bones. Yeah. Um, and one, one idea we put forth to colleagues and I is that play is training for the unexpected because play is just this mix-up of different behaviors in a sequence. So you might see biting, head shaking, hip slamming, body slamming, body biting. And the sequences in play are less predictable than, say, would be a typical aggressive sequence or predatory or mating sequence. So what we hypothesized, and it's the one explanation that explains the evolution of play across really a varied species, is that it's training for the unexpected. Hmm. What you learn early on when you play in terms of responding to unpredictability, for example, is really important later in life. Mm-hmm. And isn't it the case that at least some some forms of play serve the function of activating certain parts of the body, I don't know, the muscle system or the nervous system, just because they need some that kind of input to develop properly? Yes. I mean, at least I've read something about that. I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah, I'm not sure about cause and effect there. But right, play, for example, you exercise your brain, you exercise your body, muscles, joints, and tendons. You also are learning social skills. So you're exercising, if you will, your social skills. You know, reading when other animals are trying to use you, um, reading when um, another individual isn't being honest, um, or reading when they are and they've got a specific request. I I would like this from you, whether it's... um, a social gesture or a physical gesture. So, there, once again, there's so much to learn um, in this area, but um, I think it's really misleading for anybody to say animals don't don't behave intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let's move on to the topic of animal conservation. Uh, Why is compassion so important? I mean, apart from learning more about the behavior of uh, each specific species and individual and their needs, why is it so important for people that work with animal conservation to be compassionate people, to be empathic people and things like that? Well... As you know, I work in the area called compassionate conservation, and there's some basic guiding principles. And first is first do no harm. Yeah. The second is the lives of all individual matters, the lives of all wild individual matters. And we should be doing everything we can to give these animals the, the best lives um, possible that it, we're required to out of decency and respect, you know, for who they are. Um, it's a growing movement, and, and I think that over time we're going to see it become much more popular because I, have to, I always have to stress that there's people who call themselves, you know, or people who work in compassionate conservation really can be a mixed lot. For me, killing's off the table, so I'm not going to vote to kill any animals. If you want to, 
that's your choice, but I'm not going to. So it makes it easier for me because then you don't have to futz around with saying, well, it was okay to kill this dog or chimpanzee or elephant or fish here, but not here. You know, I'm two different situations, say. So to me, it's just off the table. We don't need to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and, yeah, and there are there are many different ways of conserving species. Do you do you think that there are some that are better than others, and what would be the best ways of doing so? Well, I mean, there are. I mean, like the wolf reintroduction and reintroduction or introduction projects can work. But when you really look at what's happening, you're kidnapping wolves, for example, from Canada and bringing them down to the Yellowstone National Park in uh, Western United States. And once at a meeting, I asked a question to, I didn't ask it to be a jerk. I asked it because I really, really um, wanted to know. So when they were uh, taking wolves from Canada and moving them down to the US, I asked them what was happening or what happened to the wolves in Canada and no one knew. <laughs> so, in English, we say you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. To pay Paul. What, that, what that really means is, so you're taking wolves from Canada and bringing them to Yellowstone. Fine. Some will die or get injured. Fine. But, you know, over the years, it's been 25 years since the first wolf was put in there. It's been a successful program. But there are no, but it's not a clean program ethically or morally because some individuals suffered and died because of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and for example, about the specific case of zoos, because I know that you already wrote about this. Do you think that zoos are a good measure of, for conserving certain species or not? Well, I mean, it's a two-sided two question. I mean, certainly you can bring animals into captivity and force them to reproduce and have individuals around of the uh, individuals of a given species around um, when they wouldn't be there if you didn't do that. But I think it's overblown to say that zoos generally play a role in conservation, for example. I mean, some do and some don't, but it's not nearly as big as a lot of zoo managers make it out to be. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so uh, I mean, it depends. It's uh, zoos are a mixed bag, let's say. Well, they're not a mixed bag for me. I think they all should be reformed and turned into rescue centers. I mean, they're, they're just not. I just, I don't know any really high-end zoos where you mean, or what people call high-end zoos, or um, where there is not a significant amount of animal suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, just by being kept in cages, you, you could argue that they're suffering. So you think that the ideal way of conserving uh, species, or at least the endangered ones, would be to uh, put them, or at least keep their habitats as, uh, as normal as possible, I mean, and have them... In, in situations and in places where they would be able to fully develop as they normally do and experience and go through their lives as they would usually do or, and experience all sorts of things that enrich their lives. Yeah, I mean, if you could have a situation like that and there were no alternatives, then, you know, that would be the the best situation where you have an animal knowingly captive, they're not, they're losing a lot of control and freedom, but they're able to express many or not, many if not all their natural behaviors, right? And once again, they're not being forced to breed and they're not being forced to live in small groups or groups that don't resemble their natural groupings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. 
Uh, and do you think that w in the current societies that we live in and the kind of ways we exploit the environment, the natural environment around us, that those kinds of enterprises are trying to at least have some areas where animals would lead their normal lives is feasible or, or not? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I think if you're asking whether some individuals benefit in those situations, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Mm -hmm. that, um, if that's what you're asking. Um, but, but by individuals, you mean whom exactly? The, the animals or the people that want to extract, uh, let's say, some sort of material from the environment and then they would have to do it another way or at least to respect some areas that would be devoted to the endangered species and, and so on. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if we're going to use animals, they've got to get something out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... But individuals rarely do. I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we're going to kill, you know, this species of owl to save that species of owl. Oh, we're going to move wolves from Canada to Yellowstone to save wolves. But they have no idea whether the wolves in Yellowstone, uh, what, whether and how the wolves in Canada will have, were affected when individuals of the packs up there were ripped away and basically, um, you know, moved down to um, Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. And isn't it the case that sometimes because resources are limited and uh, there are times where we have to decide to conservate one species instead of the other and since yeah. you are an advocate of a compassionate conservation, I mean, the, uh, uh, isn't there a risk that we might uh, experience that we might be more compassionate for animal species that are closer to us, like, for example, mammals, and in that particular habitat that are, uh, there are other kinds of species like, I don't know, reptiles or even insects that yeah. play a more basal role, a more important role, uh, in that kind of habitat and we don't devote as much resources as we should because we don't identify as much with that kind of animal, for example. Yeah, there's been a recent study that showed that um, people seem to bond with or appreciate um, animals with whom we're more closely genetically and evolutionarily related and they happen to be animals who we look you know, we, we have a close resemblance to phenotypically. So, yeah, but but just because there's strange animals out there or, or individuals who look strange, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily different from or lower than us or less sensitive to being intruded on. So we need to be careful about that because there are people who do make those speciesist <coughs> arguments where humans on top every other um, animal species below us and then below means or often translates into less valuable, you know, deserving less respect. Higher means more valuable, deserving more respect. And it's not surprising that humans are the ones who are doing that kind of ranking of the different species. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So when you mention speciesism in that particular kind of situation, I mean, when we think about species, speciesism, we usually uh, think about the situations where people put humans above all other species, but it can also be a speciesist position to create a sort of hierarchy. And for example, there could be people that think that uh, apart from humans, there are also other animals, like for example, mammals that deserve our respect, but they put uh, other kinds of species like for example amphibians, reptiles, birds and so on below mammals because 
we don't identify as much with them or are, are, are I mean I mean from a phylogenetic perspective we are closer to them yeah I mean that's exactly right I mean we tend I don't think you and I necessarily when I say we but we tend to look at animals who don't look like us or don't behave like us as more distant and um, and and less worthy of being treated well. It doesn't mean that people go out and beat them up every day, but but if you had to make a choice, those would be the animals on whom you would perform certain invasive experiments. So right, and and once again, you know, dogs and other companion animals come into the mix, although we don't look like them. At least most people I know don't. Then um, you um, we, we're familiar with them. So. The two criteria seem to be biological closeness, biological affinity, <coughs> or familiarity. Yeah. Um, yeah, but 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 those animals are they they're not even a thimbleful of the diversity that we have on this earth. When you think mm -hmm. about it, a handful of great apes, a handful of mammals, and then you've got millions of other animals and species. From you know, including insects, who very few people identify with, mm -hmm. and pe very few people understand how important they are ecologically to the planet. Well, and when it comes to animals like dogs, for example, there's also the situation where we domesticated them, and they basically keep those sort of neotenous traits throughout their lifetime and so I mean the, the, those kinds of traits that we usually call cute right and so it's easier yeah. for us to uh, empathize with them right absolutely cuteness is huge comrade Lorenz you know showed that it's the curve of the forehead the position of the eyes you know because really our eyes are mid-head but neither on you or me do they look they look higher so yeah, yeah, yeah. The cuteness factor is is really important as well as familiarity, like with companion animals and biological closeness, like with the great apes and other uh, non-human primates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and since we're talking about uh, animal companions, isn't it the case that they also bring benefits to us? I mean, that we gain something by having animal companions together with us in our homes and, and things like that. Yeah, we definitely gain. And, you know, I'm a real fan of saying that so too does the, does the non-human. I mean, the relationship say a dog human relationship that could be a cat human it could be another pet human companion animal human that it's got to work for both of them you know i always say it's it's got to be a win-win solution for uh, a win-win situation for all of them mm -hmm. yeah sometimes it's very one-sided sometimes mm -hmm. yes because that, that's something that sometimes people forget that uh, I mean, perhaps with with animal companions, it's easier for them to remember because uh, dogs and cats, particularly dogs, they, they really show love toward their uh, human companions, let's say, or human owners. But mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes there are also other species that. If we cared for them as we care for dogs and cats and devs and had some of them as animal companions, perhaps they would also bring some benefits to us and it would help with their conservation. I'm, I don't know. Yeah, no, 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 you're very right. It's very difficult sometimes to get people to broaden their taxonomic spectrum to... Mm -hmm grant to say non-companion animals, non-primates, the same courtesy and decency and respect that they grant to their companion animals. I mean, it's something I've been working on a lot is, you know, why, why do you have that? Why do so many people have those relationships? And, you know, with dogs, it's easy to imagine they've been around and they've been close to humans for a long time. They're, you know, considered artifacts, some of them, you know, that they're, Man-made, if you will, human-made. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, they still have needs and wants. It doesn't mean that they don't have needs and wants, and it doesn't mean that they can't be abused or tortured 
um, really easily and really conveniently. And so what I'm trying to ask you is, uh, we are trying here in our conversation to apply knowledge coming from science to ah. specific ethical considerations, like, for example, animal conservation. Do you yeah. think that uh, things like theology and spirituality can help the enterprise of science when applied to those situations? I do. I mean, I really can't say anything particularly sophisticated about it, but but I really like talking with theologians um, and and people who you know ponder and work in the areas you know that entail spirituality. I was a member of the Science and the Spiritual Quest program about twenty years ago, and it was fascinating to sit in a room. I'm an ethologist. Jane Goodall was part of one of the programs. And here we are studying wild animals as ethologists. There were neurobiologists, psychologists, philosophers, theologians, you know, in the room, people working in um, spiritual dimensions. And I actually learned a lot by, by um, listening to them, you know, discuss what evolution means to them, what dark, how, I might look at Darwin and they might look at Darwin, for example. Um, and um, so I actually don't think I can think of any example where those kinds of musings, you know, theological or spiritual can harm other animals. I'm sure there must be some because there's people out there who really like to harm other animals. But but um, but no, I, yeah, I think they can be very valuable. I think any kind of discussion that looks at who we are as human animals, looks at non-human animals, who they are, and then, you know, really factors them off into different species and as individuals. Any kind of discussion can really help them along, as long as it's motivated by helping them along. Um, in, our, in our book, The Animal's Agenda, Jessica Pierce and I wrote about what we call the knowledge translation gap which is basically the failure to use what we know on behalf of the well-being of other animals. So in the United States, the Federal Animal Welfare Act basically says mice and rats, birds, fishes, and invertebrates are not animals. Hmm. And people are shocked when they hear that. <clears throat> but one part of the Animal Welfare Act says we are redefining the word animal to exclude laboratory rats and mice and birds and fishes and invertebrates. So they've redefined animal. And then when I do kids programs, kids will say, well, if they're not animals, what are they or who are they? And, and, and it gets into good discussions. But to me, it's the most bizarre. It's among the most bizarre things in a bizarre world that they say that these animals aren't animals, um, but don't offer any alternative. They, you know, they're, it's bizarre. And they're saying it, we know why, because they're used and killed and slaughtered and brutalized by the millions. So your most popular lab animal is not given the decency of being recognized as an animal. And what shocks me is where are all the scientists? I mean, seriously, there's all, I mean, me and maybe a few, a handful have spoken out about this. The rest just, just ignore it. So what I love to do is to tell people this. There are some practicing scientists who don't know this. They just don't know that these animals have been reclassified as who knows what, because they're not plants and they're not bacteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but do you think that perhaps some of those scientists, even if they study animals, I mean, if they are biologists and they know all of these aspects of human behavior and psychology and they know that there's biological continuity between those other species and us that they are they still hold a species a speciesist uh, position because speciesism in a way 
is innate in us or at least to some extent is innate i mean that we feel more uh, affiliative with our, uh, with people from our own species or at least to some extent to other mammals but apart from that it's hard to get uh, to uh, to be empathic toward other animals yeah there's some really fascinating work done in canada um and I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm drawing a blank on that. Gordon Hob, Hod, Hobson, um, looking at the way in which humans respond to um, other cultures. And he's done some really nice work looking at in-group versus out-group memberships and affiliations. And yeah, the same, it seems like a lot of the same processes that occur when people look at other people and call them aliens is exactly the same kind of thinking as when they look at non-human animals as they're not members of my group you know the whole tribe mentality the whole tribal mentality in humans does does apply and i was fascinated to read some of his research that when you look at the words people use they'll go well they're not members of my group and sometimes for certain people, you know, maybe the sickies and the ones who were really demented sometimes say, well, they're not really members of my species. And it's, it's no more bizarre than saying that rats and mice aren't animals to say that another human being isn't a member of Homo sapiens. But, but there are these nutballs out there who do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let me just ask you one last question and perhaps Sorry to go off on that. <laughs> no, 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 no problem at all. Let, let me just ask you and maybe give you an opportunity to leave a final message here just before we finish the interview. Uh, what, uh, what are the ways that you use at least to try to other people that are non-vegans in this case to listen to your position? And I, I mean, how, uh, do you ever try to persuade other people to become vegans or at least to reduce the harm that they do to other animals and be more cons conscientious about it or, or conscious about it or and i mean or, or not do you do that or not and if so what are the kinds of arguments that you use i do but to a limited extent i'd rather just i'd rather um i'd rather set an example you know and and if somebody says, oh, you know, I notice you don't eat animals or animal products, you know, why? And talk to them about why. And then, you know, the who you're eating is one mechanism because it's not offensive. I've only, I've not even, I've never had a person get really offended by it. Sometimes they nervously laugh, but that gets them going. Or I just... Um, done a lot of work in China rescuing moon bears and people have said to me oh so you go to China um, you know how can you go there that's where they eat dogs and cats and I'll say well I just left America where we eat cows and pigs and chickens and lambs and sheep and and I say it nicely because I don't believe that you're going to get anywhere by being nasty and sometimes people will go you know there'll be that hesitation Oh, and then I'll go, well, you know, the fact of the matter is um, that cows and sheep and pigs are no less sentient than your dogs or cats. So we're causing suffering and the exclusion of dogs and cats in a lot of countries, of course, is, is due to the close relationship we have. And it's a form of speciesism mm -hmm. or some people will say, well, you know, yeah, I eat chickens, but I don't eat pigs, uh, you know, or, or I eat, they'll say, I eat chicken, but I don't eat like pork, sausage, or ham. And I'll go, oh, you mean you don't eat pig? And they'll go, I mean, really, they'll go, yeah. And then there's this hesitation, because really, a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich is a pig, or I call it a babe lettuce and tomato sandwich. So I'll put little things like that, that out there, and I, and I, I really do try to do them nicely. I'm not militant about this. Set an example and go home. I mean, I mean, I really, really mean that because you're not going to force people to change their meal plans. 
you know, you're going to have to set an example. So yes, I do. Um, I ride my bike excessively when I was racing bikes a lot. I would buy people vegan dinners, breakfasts or lunches. And they'd go, well, how about, you know, is it okay if I get it like a chicken sandwich? <laughs> you know, jokingly say, well, the last time I looked, the chicken was an animal. So I'll say no, but I will buy you vegan meals. And, and that, I mean, with the people I interact with, not only friends, but just, you know, acquaintances and people I meet, that kind of modeling, modeling goes a long way, mm-hmm. you know, and they'll say, oh, it's really hard to be vegan. No, it's not. I've been to numerous countries. You can always get vegan meals um, and, and you can be healthy. You know, it's such a myth that you need to eat meat. Um, you need to drink, you know, real milk, if you will. But, I mean, that's another story. But but I do, by example, just say, or not only me, but other people say, look, if you don't want to be vegan or vegetarian, that's okay. I mean, I mean, I wish you were, but that's okay. But don't give me a hard time for making those choices. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah. But but do you think that you have been successful to any extent in trying to uh, turn some people into vegans or at least convincing them to reduce their meat intake or, or not? I think personally I've been enormously successful. Mm-hmm. I really do. I don't mean that in a self-serving way. But yes, I have numerous friends Numerous people who I've met at meetings, like like that example I gave you about who, who's for dinner and these women in Vienna. I think I've been really successful. And I think one reason I've been successful is because I don't jam it down their throats. They'll say, oh, you, you know, like I ride my bike a lot and we've done a lot of 180 or 200 kilometer rides. And I'll sit down and I'll have a veggie burger and french fries and a beer or something. And some guy said to me, oh, so... Um, you know, you don't do that all the time, do you? It was really funny. It was a guy I didn't know. And I went, I do. And later on, I met him a couple of months later around Boulder, because it's a smallish town. And he was so nice. He said, I went home and I told my wife, I met this old guy, because I'm not that young, but I'm not that old. I met this old guy who just rode 100 miles. And all he did was eat veggie burgers, french fries and a beer and a salad. And so it was really interesting because I hadn't seen them around. So I think I have been very successful at getting people to change their meal plans by example and by being nice about it. You know, so when I say, I don't care if you eat meat, well, of course I care, but I'm not going to change you if I beat you over the head and say you're a bad person or you're a nasty person. And even my friend who says, you know, well, I, I know they suffer, but I love my hamburger, um, has now begun, I think, Monday Monday and Friday, no meat day in this house, no, no animal day in this house. Mm-hmm. Some people go, oh, big deal. It's a huge deal. It's huge. So I see him a lot. I ride my bikes with him. I take him out for lunch. And he says, oh, can I get that pork fried rice? I said, you can get it and pay for it. <laughs> but I'm only buying you tofu fried rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Dr. Beckoff, uh, let's end on that positive note. It's really good to know that. And before we go, uh, are there any good places on the internet for people who want to learn more about your work to go or, or not? Do yeah. you want to mention any websites or places like that? Yeah, they could go to my website, which is just markbeckoff.com. Um, they want to learn about books, they can just do a web search. And as much as I don't like Amazon, I guess it's the easiest place for them to find, you know, that information. Um, I run a, an animal emotions, um, an animal cognition, animal emotions, and compassionate conservation Google group which um, if they're interested in joining, they could email me. And, and, and I Twitter, I guess I tweet. <laughs> I don't tweet. <laughs> um, and they could find me there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I will be leaving all of those sources in the description box of the interview so that people can have access to all of that. And Dr. Beckoff, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show, and it was really fun to everyone, so thank you a lot. Thank you, Ricardo. It's been great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. And to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And I also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and main supporters, Karin Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klingpi, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalanias, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingarten, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Marco Neves, Max Belby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spigny, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Labrant, Os Oslem Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardus France, David Sloan Wilson, and Yasila Deza Araujo, my producers Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, and my executive producers Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.